the time finally comes for this movie to ride its high, for that plan to come into action. And it happens pretty much silently. There's no music under the score. There's just action. There's nothing Don Siegel does better than filming action happening and making it interesting. And if, like, if you like movies where it's just people doing things, even if it's simple, you know, like figuring out how to weld, figuring out the best way to sneak in and out of your cell, then this is your movie. This, they, they, this kind of, to me, made the blueprint, even though it, and I'm sure other movies did it before them. But I'm watching this and I'm like, holy fuck, Shashik Redemption just stole everything from Escape to from Alcatraz. Welcome to Theater and Stream, a film podcast. I am Matt, and that is Chuck, and this is episode four. Today we wrap up our series on the films of Don Siegel with the film that would mark the end of the 1970s and Siegel's career zenith, Escape from Alcatraz. Did three prisoners make the only successful escape from the prison in June of 1962? We'll discuss that question and more in our featured review. Back in the present, we have a new king of the box office and cultural zeitgeist, the Mario Brothers movie. Along with a host of other news items and watch list selections, we'll talk about the Mario movie's massive success and get Chuck's opinion on the film itself. And of course, as we always do, we're going to bring the show home with the mentionable and naming our pick of the week. For video watchers out there, you're going to find timestamps in the episode description. And if you like what you see or hear, any feedback is always appreciated, whether it's a like and sub on YouTube or a rating on your podcast service of choice. But that's the business end of the show. Chuck, we have a ton to get into. Let's get right into it. Let's get right into it. I will just say, even if you have something mean to say, like if you think we're bad at our jobs, please tell us. We love your know, spirited discourse and conversation because that's the only way you keep things you know fresh in this world, which is you know you know, partially you know why theaters are looking more appealing because streaming not the new hotness it once was because Hollywood's fallen back in love with theaters. This is something you Matt basically predicted was on the horizon based on you know Disney's trends with Star Wars, but how is the rest of the industry? showing that the the old way of doing things the old paradigm still has some viability yeah it's kind of this is sort of some uh hopeful news to go into our summer movie season here that basically uh domestic box office is up uh more than 500 percent from 2021 uh the second largest theater chain in the u.s 
uh, Cineworld that filed for bankruptcy last year has exited bankruptcy and they are now re they're filing plans for reorganization. So, you know, they have some sort of uh, hope that that they're going to be able to make it. And um, the word on the street is that um, theaters, uh, they're needed. They're needed, essentially. You know, never mind. Basically, the studios are coming back to the theaters and they're basically saying with their tail between their legs, we're sorry for abandoning you for two years. Can we please come back? Because what what the pandemic was, I mean, it was many things, but for theater, for studios in particular, it was the litmus test to see if they could make it without movie theaters. And the answers are resounding, no, we cannot. They must be a part of the business plan. And so that's kind of what's fueling this story that was penned by Variety this week and that we talked about last week in the in the Star Wars story. But yeah, what do, what do you make of this? It's very nice to know that this was just like a forced L on their part. Like mm -hmm. they could have got put more effort into getting people to go to theaters again. Like have a fucking coupon day. Like if Jurassic Park can have coupon day, why doesn't AMC? Why don't they like mm -hmm. they just you got to get the promotions. You got to get the experience level up. That's something I hear from business owners locally, you know, small business owners. If you're not making you're going to your you know to patronize your place of business and experience you're not getting the young people you're not getting you know the gen xers you know and the like you know the millennials For, forget about the old heads there's they were the only people keeping theaters afloat even during covid the only time i saw people in a theater they had white hair for a really long time there. <laughs> but yeah. yeah if you want to get young people to actually show up to like go see bodies 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 i don't know how you market that better i don't like i don't I, you know what i mean something mm -hmm. was missing and it's that energy that we used to like thrive on which was going to releases going to early releases of things having that you know bespoke you know experience you know that you kind of created with your own environment with the film fans around you they got to get back to that i guess it's almost similar to conventions in a way but you make your local theater have that same feeling because if you lose that then yeah people might as well just stay home and have that soulless relationship with that tiny screen on their phone because mm -hmm. other yeah cause, but then because people aren't enjoying that people are pulling back from that too you know, you know when you look at you know, the numbers for you know all that disney streaming star wars content it's quite diminished you know in terms of how many people are actually watching it and then you know yeah look at what's happened in theaters last year you give people a reason to fucking show up and they will and the same is happening this year too yeah, I mean, no matter what sort of entertainment uh, category you're in, people are searching for those like in-person experiences now because I think most people at this point are ready to go back out into the world again. And so, you know, people are going back to restaurants. The number of vacations that people are planning are at an all-time high, you know, from before the pandemic. Uh, people are going to concerts at in record numbers again. So this is going to be, this is part of that. Yeah. And, um, you know, what, what we're going to, well, there's two things we're going to learn from a little bit later in the show. It's that people, you know, people will come out for your big blockbuster movies and your tentpole animated releases. And then number two, um, you know, like look, when, when we look at what, the streaming services are announcing now 
Notice how in that HBO announcement that we're going to talk about in a bit here, not one movie was announced for, for HBO Max. Everything was a TV show. And so we're no longer going to see day and date releases. We're no longer going to see like, for the most part, streaming specific movies that just get dumped on streaming anymore. Everything's going to go back to the theater. You might get an occasional, you know, indie movie that goes directly to a streaming service, but that's about it. And so um, even Netflix, even like we noticed this last week, we were just looking at future releases. For some reason, Netflix is rolling out old ass movies from their catalog and putting the, and giving them limited theatrical runs because they might mm-hmm. as well they're not making money off of you know more subscriber numbers you know like the, all these weird little boutique art films that they've picked up are, are just collecting like figurative dust on their servers no one's watching them they know that no one is watching them you know like once you remove it from the award season that they try and you know insert them into so yeah they might as well just curate you know, like some, you know, like what's in my local theater? Oh, Netflix owns this this theater in my local AMC, and only Netflix movies are played here. Maybe, maybe that's something that happens. Because yeah, how else are they gonna you know, make any profit off of the dead weight from some like random ass movie that Kenya Barris made for them? You know, it's, it's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know, here's here's the um to to kind of put a put a pin in this the um. One thing from the pandemic that I do think is going to stick around, the one thing that that uh, studios kind of, you know, ripped out of the theater owners' hands was the the time, the amount of time between the theatrical release and the home release, because that that uh, over the pandemic that got shortened, and I think it's going to remain shortened for the most part. So, the new sort of pipeline for releases is going to be like a a month-long theatrical window, and then they'll put it on digital rental, premium rental. So it's going to be 20 bucks to rent because they're saying, oh, this movie's still in theaters. So if you're going to watch it at home, we're going to charge you 20 bucks to rent it. And then only after, you know, it's it's a premium rental for another month, then they'll drop it. They'll drop the price down to five or six bucks and they'll do the physical release um, of it, the disc release. And so that's going to be kind of the new pipeline, I think, going forward. And we've been seeing this pipeline slowly gestate ever since, uh, what was it? Tower heist. That was like the first major movie. I remember it was like shocking that you was of something (laughs) that you could just like get on demand at home. But I recall that it didn't really help that movie, you know, make money at the box office. It was, it was failed to begin with, but now, Mm. Does it make that? Does that shortened theatrical exclusivity actually make it more like appealing to like for people to show up and see it? You know, like does it actually drive interest to see it in a theater? Does it boost box office in a way? Because hey, this is the only like only t- I'm only gonna be able to see this in a theater for a short period of time, and then it's just gonna be part of the slop that everybody is given. <laughs> so in a way, like does it does it make it more appealing? to go see a movie in a theater now that you know that it's not going to be there for months? I, you know, I don't think necessarily because the, the theater or the, the movies are still staying in the theaters for just as long, Okay, but they're just, they're just getting released on, uh, for rental for premium rental earlier. And so, you know, we're still seeing like, um, you know, the number of movies that's being released 
in theaters, you know, it's still, um, that's really the only thing that's pushing movies out. So, you know, if we do see an increase in the movies that studios are putting back in theaters because they're no longer putting them on their streaming services, that's going to be the thing that pushes the, the movies out faster, I think. I see. Right on. Because, yeah, that just leads us to our next topic. Because like you alluded to, they're not making a lot of these, you know, Max exclusives anymore. Now it is just full bore into the reality TV programming that David Zaslav loves, you know, and his discoveries bread and butter. And, you know, some really, you know, obvious choices for their HBO programming. But apparently HBO as a brand turns people off or something because they determined based on analysis that they needed to just cut, slice that off the top and just call their platform Max. What do we make of this rebranding? Oh man, I, I think it's awful. I mean, Ma the, the thing about Max is it doesn't mean anything. Like it, the the whole like Max name was just something that they could throw on the end of HBO to make the name of a service. It'd be like if, it would be like if Apple TV Plus just renamed themselves Plus. Yeah. It literally means it literally means nothing. Like there's nothing associated with the word Max. And yeah, this is like, the no lineage. You know, you know, I, I had HBO now, because you know, but then HBO Go was specifically very separate from now. It made your yeah. hair fall out, and then Max became a thing, and it, it made sense. But yeah, I guess it just didn't have the allure. Be but I don't understand how HBO is the problem here either. Like it makes no sense it, to me. The anyway. only thing I can really think of is um maybe people associate hbo with like very adult programming you uh, know like you know they associate hbo with like um shows that have a lot of sex and a lot of violence and it's not good for their bottom dollar when they don't have you know families with young children subscribing to their streaming yeah. service and max is just that that weird little you know ai voice that they're eventually going to create an entire like you know, like AI character. There's going to be a chat bot within the platform <laughs> that you'll just talk. It'll be the fusion. Like, cause that's what, you know, like, like Siri and Alexa are. This is what's yep. missing from the experience. And Max is just this, you know, scrappy little boy who, you know, is just a mascot. Ultimately, that's where I see this going. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, this, this pricing tier, this is the thing that yes. pisses me off the most. They're, they want me to pay an extra, you know, five bucks a month just so I can see 4K on your platform. It just makes all the other platforms that just give it to me, you know, you know, because they know it's what will keep me around. Like making me pay a premium for this when I'm already paying a premium not to have ads forced upon me. It just makes me want to go back to physical media only and just, mm -hmm. you know, cut the cable, cut my cord again from all these <laughs> streaming platforms. They're, they're taking succession away from me. Why should I stick around for this? Yeah, this it's pretty awful. I mean, they're essentially, they're breaking something off that we already had access to for free and they're turning it into like the premium feature. And um, HBO Max's 4K implementation has always been really bad in yeah. my opinion. Like you, they're one of the few streaming services where you don't know whether or not you're even watching in 4K because there's nothing, they, there's no indicators of it. Like it on, on Amazon Prime, you can bring up the, 
the menu and it'll say whether or not you're streaming in 4K or in some other services, you'll get a little uh, icon in the corner of your screen that says um, Dolby Vision or uh, HDR, but none of that happens on HBO and I don't know why. And so half the time when I'm streaming their 4K content, I don't even think it is actually streaming in 4K. So. Um, I'm going to personally stick to the, the middle tier is what I'm going to do because that's, that's what I'm paying now, I believe. And I, you know, if they get their ducks in a row, maybe I'll upgrade, but I mean, watching some of those Game of Thrones episodes that are apparently in 4k, it's really, really bad. Oh no. See, and that's always been kind of their problem with the execution. They, they never execute on their good ideas and they just end up being trash you know ultimately but what did we make of some of the things they rolled out does this penguin show interest you does the idea of a matt reeves you know universe hopping between tv shows and movies does that work yeah i i think so i mean this is um sort of the first entry um into this expanded batman universe this sort of sub sub-universe this else worlds and yeah i'm looking forward to this this um you know it has a really uh sort of i don't know like a mob movie type feel to it and uh i like a lot of the people that are showing up in it and um yeah this could be this could be really interesting and you know for the record i think all everything that we'll talk about here i think i am excited for to some extent i think they really they really kind of hit a home run with all the stuff that they announced and we're not going to talk about everything that they announced but you know i'm i can say that i am excited for every single one of these things that they announced to some extent maybe other than like the gremlins animated <laughs> show like i could i could do without that but but yes i am i am excited for this what i am excited for but trepidatious about is this like lean into continuity within true detective with night country. Cause I don't know if you saw it, but the, they have a big fucking spiral there for some fucking reason. Cause you know, yeah. season three, you know, like established that. Yeah. These things do take place in the same shared universe. If there is one. So is this just going to be a, like, are we going to see Cthulhu in this one? Because like you can't tease me like this. You have the Arctic setting. You have the 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 long night happening, and if I don't see it like a tentacle god in this, I might get pissed. Because like I, like what is this bringing to the table from what you can tell? Well, I mean, you can definitely tell that they are leaning into season one, like ex to the extreme. Because you know, like you said, there's that shot of like a, a spiral or some sort of you know, like pagan uh, symbol or something like that. And then, you know, they specifically, um, I think it already came up in the trailer here, but there's like the shot of Jodie Foster sitting in front of two other <laughs> cops while they're interviewing her, exactly like the interview scenes of Matthew McConaughey and, and Woody Harrelson in the first season. So I think the message, message they're trying to send with this trailer is, like, please come watch our show. It's it's just like season one. It's just like season one, you know, please come watch. And, you know, I'm down for it. I, I, I've said before, I mean, I think I made this one of my most anticipated earlier this year when we talked about that. And I'm, I'm, I'm really down for this based off the people involved, uh, Issa Lopez. Mm -hmm. And, and um, yeah, very, very much looking forward to it. 
the the surprise that we get though is that our boy Park Chan Wook is collaborating with Robert Downey Jr. about you have a Pulitzer Prize winning novel called The Sympathizer about a North Vietnamese spy operating within the United States during the Vietnam War. And this just sounds wild. It looks amazing. And you have Robert Downey Jr. playing three different roles because the man needs something to do, apparently. But yeah, I like, like the, I'm going to forgive me for the pun, but I am down hard for this. I can't wait for it. Yeah, same. It, it looks awesome. And yeah, him playing three different roles. I mean, I think uh, Downey Jr., he's in the phase of his career where like he is he's already set up money wise and now he's just picking the projects he actually wants to do because he's he's just rolling in the cash um, at this point. And so, yeah, I mean, he's you can tell from the projects that he's choosing to do that he's just he, he's doing the stuff that will actually creatively fulfill him at this point and um yeah this this looks awesome i i can't wait for this he's come a long way from you know being like given charity to be in the singing detective you know by yeah. mel gibson and <laughs> yeah. yeah the it, it is very you know refreshing that you know you can just see this man do whatever the fuck he wants to do because he hasn't made a lot of movies this decade outside of, you know, being Iron Man. I think the the judge is like his only credit. Uh, maybe there's yeah. something. Yeah. Well, Iron Man. And then he had like a weird, like childhood fascination with Dr. Doolittle. So he I, made, I forgot about he that. Made that Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> God, the article that, you know, that I read recently, like totally memory hold that they didn't mention it <laughs> once. And I think there's a reason for it. God, still haven't seen it because I hear it's dog shit. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, but the larger, I guess, you know, question is: Are we? Is this this is the norm now? Though, we are done seeing what should be premium being put on something that is low culture. Now, like, are we going to see a Pixar movie get you know? It's, yeah, like you say, day and date releases are probably going away. So is Disney yep. going to recommit? We're not going to you know have Pixar you know dumped onto streaming when it should be in a theater. But does that mean we're actually going to get movies worthy of being in a theater? Or are we going to be getting streaming level quality in theaters now? Like, is, is it going to get a diminished product just so that they can try and get more money out of it? Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, they, for the most part, they're going to just release stuff in theaters now as far as the films go. I think if anything, what they would do if they still wanted to put some movies on streaming services is they will have like a subcategory of like budget movies basically where they're like like okay we're gonna put this animated film on our streaming service but the budget cannot exceed 80 million or something like that you know wow. the budget because we at a certain point they have no hope of making their money back once you reach like a certain threshold i don't know what that threshold is but i would assume it's probably somewhere around you know, approaching a hundred million dollars where you must put that movie in theaters if you want any hope of making your your budget back. Um, but the one, also the one thing I wanted to, before we do move on, okay. the one show I did want to call out here real quick is that Regime show. I don't know if you- I didn't see the trailer for that, that, but like, so is this like a heightened, like fictional totalitarian regime or is this just- British succession like business drama family 
squabbles? Or is there is it this, is is this more like Kings that show with Ian McShane? This is this is actually like a um I mean it does look like British succession. I, I know that that was sort of or I think that was like the pitch that they made. And then you look at the people involved. This is from um, the two guys, I think it's Will Tracy and Seth Reese who wrote uh, the menu. Yeah. And then they wrote a bunch of episodes of Succession um, between the two of them. And so it does look very similar to Succession. But the thing that has me interested is it watching the trailer, it looks like it's leaning a lot more into like the absurd and like the absurdity of, of okay. everything. Um, and like there's literally a shot that's, in the trailer that's clearly a homage to blue velvet where kate winslet is like sucking on an oxygen mask and okay um so it looks it looks pretty bonkers to me and so yeah i just wanted to mention that one quick because i i that's one of the ones i'm really looking forward to it it looks pretty the only thing that kind of has me like eh on it is um i think the the one of the directors involved is stephen freer's Oh really? Who's, okay. Yeah, who's kind of like I don't know. I've I've always thought he's a little bit he, he's a little bit too stuffy to be directing something like this. I mean, he is very British, but I don't know if he has like the the style the style to um, take yeah. on something like this. But he, he's he's very much the I don't know. He's like masterpiece theater. You know, yes. Like, like that, that's the that's the vibe I get from him because he, mm -hmm. he he did do some you know pretty you know worthwhile stuff over the years but he's definitely fallen off because like, he his name used to be one of because he did croupier right no he didn't that i think was, so oh. i guess based on his what i'm looking at he did not do croupier so okay he did the grifters though so mm -hmm. and high fidelity and dirty pretty things so like he is a name that he's got some good stuff in his credits but he's yeah not as edgy as he used to be yeah. And and you gotta have something. You gotta have some juice, and no one's got more juice in history, I would say, than a portly little, you know, blue collar worker from you know New York. And this movie has defied all expectations, even my own. We'll get to that later. But the by the numbers, Super Mario Brothers is part of the reason why theaters are still alive. This movie mm -hmm. is making like more money than you know disney has seen a debut of theirs make in a long time this is making marvel and star wars level numbers you know like it's it's almost to a billion you know it's halfway there for crying out loud and it's you know, barely been two weeks best you know opening for illumination ever best video game movie debut ever i'm just having all these things fly across the screen you know sorry for you know the audio only people who are joining the our listener base that, yeah, there's just a lot happening that you know makes a lot of you know critics look really out of touch because they hated this movie you know the, <laughs> their reviews were scathing they were like they were so dismissive they were so negative some were outright hostile and frankly i'm just gonna say this it is just their built-in hatred for all things nerdy modern the modern critic class whether they are old ass boomers of like Roger Ebert's generation and even people our age, if you can believe it or not, they have this elitism about video games. It is low culture. It's low art. It's storytelling is shit. The people who play it are contemptible and they just don't have a high view of the whole industry, even though that industry is taking their lunch 
you know two ways to sunday every single week when you look at the, the grosses of an average video game versus the entire film industry coming out of hollywood but yeah when you look at the disparity between you know aggregate scores and audience reactions what does that tell you when you especially when you look at the box office results it's been happening yeah well you know i think rotten tomatoes is pretty it's a pretty awful like company and a pretty awful service for a lot of reasons but one of the things that is interesting or that makes it interesting is analyzing trends and I was look I was sort of looking into this yesterday and I was looking at a bunch of different movies at their audience scores and their critic scores and I kind of noticed a couple things that I kind of I wanted to sort of get off my chest here so when you look at the audience scores and critic scores for all types of different movies the the trends that it shows is that audiences tend to love action films animated films and raunchy comedies more than critics and films that you know with high audience scores and low critic scores include things like the boss baby 2 were the millers uh the uncharted movie the smurfs movie and venom and when you look at what critics like in general they tend to prefer slower cerebral horror films indie thrillers and drier comedy films so if you look at the movies that critics tend to love that audiences don't you're gonna see stuff like uh it comes at night the coen brothers movie hail caesar uh jordan peele's us uh the nightingale and mohawk that indie thriller from a couple years ago and so um it i think it really all just boils down to entertainment value versus artistic value and that's that's what you, that's what you see with those trends and so um critics are looking for that next you know thing that's gonna you know drive them into a hole of depression and and uh you know make them look at their life in an existential way and audiences just want to go to the theater get two hours of air conditioning and <laughs> be you know and be entertained for you know they want the entertainment value and that's kind of what it boils down to i think and because their tastes are so divergent it does kind of create the situation where you know stinging rebukes from critics are taken as you know, like ringing endorsements by audiences if they're even paying attention to what the critics are saying anyway like it is a meme where it's like oh so and so said this movie sucks it must be great i'm gonna go see it now where it's like they're almost doing it out of spite because there's just so much you know like they just there's just they just don't trust what this person has to say even if rotten tomatoes will give them the time of day and i and i bring up grace randolph right now not to slag on her everyone else is doing that enough but there are just some things she said that were just so categorically like so off base they were so like flaming hot as a take that the fact that she's just acting like she was she's still right you know in the aftermath of all of this is bizarre because like she was saying things like this movie is going to be dead at the box office by friday you know was speaking of super mario brothers right now and like and she's like someone who's written comics for the big two companies she's you know, she's an accredited like she, she did something called superbia that was like such a big hit that it got an extended run as a limited series and uh, you know she's you know also has the, her youtube channel where she does reviews called beyond the trailer 
and I don't bring her up to send anyone over there to like make fun of her. Everyone else is already doing that. It's an industry to chew on the chaw that this woman gives us. Because, yeah, like saying things like Matt Vogel's never going to work again, that this is the worst thing Illumination has ever done when they have movies like Hop and those Minions movies, you know, like in their credits. Like those are categorically bad movies. I don't know if you've ever seen Hop, no. Matt. It's really, it's not a good movie. It's the definition of shovelware. And yeah. with with Grace Randolph getting so unhinged and off the chain, it did just boil down to this movie is catering too much to people I don't like. And I, and I assume I don't like them because of their politics. And because this movie doesn't cater to my politics, I'm going to you know just burn the whole house down. And after seeing this movie myself, I guess we'll we'll kind of you know get to that after a little bit more discussion. But mm -hmm. I, I, I don't under like because I saw this movie because of her reaction. I was willing sure. to wait to see this <laughs> thing until it was like free for me. But then I was like, no, it's Easter weekend. I need something to do. And I went to yeah. go see it. And my God, it is not the experience that is being described by some of these people. But yeah. are we sick to and tired of just people, you know, getting histrionic? over <laughs> critics not liking things because like i watched a lot of that and i got really bored with it very quickly yeah well i had i had honestly never heard of this woman so i went over you know to look at her youtube channel quick and you know just kind of a quick scan of her youtube channel and you can you can tell that she's a you know just a youtube grifter who um like contrarian you know typical contrarian who she does she uh bases her opinions based on what's going to get her views essentially and yeah so it for for me it was a pretty like open shut case of just you know three pointering her into the garbage can and never going back to her channel again but you know you had mentioned about how people you know take critic rebukes as like a endorsement to go see the movie and I think this particular movie was always going to be untouchable, like yeah. no matter what, like no matter what score it got, this was because it's Mario. This is like the definition of a four quadrant movie where you have, you know, the nostalgia for the men and the women over 25 and you have the current Mario games, the kids with their 3DSs and their switches for all of the, the kids under 25, the, the boys and girls. And so it's just the definition of a four quadrant movie and and so this movie was always going to do well but i do think there are there certainly are people out there that would go see this uh be solely because they think they're making some sort of political statement by doing so or some sort of you know by giving the film their eight bucks or their ten bucks they're somehow contributing into some sort some sort of political cause I'm but voting with my dollars exactly yeah, yeah. and so yeah, I mean, it, I, I do think there are people out there. I mean, there, for me, there's people like that where, it, you know, if I see that, for instance, uh, Emmanuel Levy or Cole Smithy, those are like two of the the big reviewers out there that if I see them give a positive or negative review of something, I know that my opinion is going to be the opposite of whatever they said because they're just such, they're such awful um contrarians and their tastes are so they're so eclectic to the point of being 
um, stupid or yeah. just like just just complete stupidity because they're they have such weird tastes and it's just it, it's off they're off their rocker but so yeah I mean there is people out there like that but I think this this film in particular was always gonna be do well and you put and it's because of like how, what makes it a four quadrant movie it's because so many generations have such a lived experience with the brand like yeah. we, we make fun of Disney adults Nintendo adults are also you know, you know, a force to be reckoned with in this world. And they have been dying for this movie ever. Like that movie came out when I was three years old and we have like, I, I haven't even watched it to completion. I've only ever seen it on TV. You can't buy that original movie, you know, like on any platform right now, not even on Amazon. Cause like we, mm -hmm. Angie is one of those people who unironically loves the original movie with you know, Bob Hoskins and Leguizamo. And she can't even, you know, satisfy that itch and watch that, you know, because that is how much Nintendo doesn't want people to remember that one. You can't find it. Because, yeah. And, and, and I, yeah, because they are desperate to take advantage of their brand in all of the ways that one should. If you are Mickey Mouse, why don't you have a theme park? Okay, good. If you are Mickey Mouse, why are you letting these weirdos in France, you know, put fart jokes and like, you know, you know licensed movie mo music montages in your mario brothers movie like you know like there's certain things that like as a company you have to stop so i understand like why they got so involved because you it's not just mario it's the whole video game industry is i guess is where i'm kind of getting at there's a lot mm -hmm. of other four quadrant properties out there that aren't marvel and aren't you know star wars and they belong to either Sony or Microsoft or Nintendo, and they are players now too. So, like, is Hollywood finally gonna get over this hump of having to only adapt things that are clearly just you know video games that wish they were movies to begin with? Because we've seen, you know, cause like, The Last of Us is obviously a an example of a, a success of that kind of a paradigm. But like, what else are we gonna see Hollywood embrace going forward? With, with Mario being so successful. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there are certain video game genres that lend themselves better to becoming an adaptation. And I think like, like story-driven third-person or first-person games, um, adventure games, um, I guess like story-driven walking simulators is what they're called. Um, you know, those types of games, they really lend themselves to being adapted i mean there's certain stuff that i don't think we're ever gonna get adaptations of and not everything needs an adaptation that's something they should realize that's like, the important part you know yeah we don't need a bejeweled movie we don't need a peggle movie we didn't we don't need, need a, a need for speed movie you know usually. yeah we, we don't need a rate you know rate uh, racing game movies even though we're gonna get a gran turismo movie here soon uh, or like RTS games, like we don't really need movies based off like Command and Conquer, you know that type of thing. And so, oh, but those cutscenes are so great, Matt. Yeah. That shit's my childhood. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you, you're right. But they should they should remain as is. I, I think they should remain in the '90s. And um, yeah, I mean, the key to a successful adaptation, I think, is what we're what we're seeing now is getting the original creators involved because that is the thing that unites the Mario Brothers movie and the Last of Us TV show because you need to get the original creators involved. You know, you, you're, you can 
you can, you know, take their word with a grain of salt if you want. You know, you can treat them however you want, but they should be involved in some way because, I mean, at the end of the day, whoever's directing the film should get final say, but you have to get these guys involved. And that's, I guess, with The Last of Us, what they were able to do with his involvement was bridge the gap between gameplay and the drama, you know, you know to take the perspective out of the, the player's head you know, and into the character's head, you know, like that's how they overcame that hump. Cause a lot of video game movies, like you like doom, for example, you know, are just like, Oh, let's just force the gameplay into the movie in a way that doesn't serve the movie at all. And it's like, that's why like hardcore Henry is probably like the best video game movie ever made because it is, it is not unlike just having somebody else holding the controller while you have a VR helmet on. And like, mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily a you know crowd pleaser either. It's more of an art house exercise versus you know something that is marketable. So if there's, do we want them to avoid things we've already seen? Do we need another Doom movie? Is Halo like you know off limits now for a while, along with Warcraft and Resident Evil? Like, should they try and bring us something new, or are they just gonna try to? do it better with those other properties that they've been fucking up for years. I think, gosh, I, you know, I, I would like them to get another crack at the Witcher because that, that universe is so cool and there's so much lore there and there's so many stories there. That is one in particular that I would love to see again. But I mean, there are certainly things that should have never been adapted in the first place. Like, I mean, you had mentioned the Need for Speed movie. I I don't think, I mean, Doom is, I don't think there's enough story there to do Doom. It's it's fairly, it's a fairly, you know, um, there's a premise there, certainly, you know, um, but it's, there's no real story there. And so um, I, I think they just need to pick and choose their things wisely. I mean, there's... There's certain stuff that should definitely get another crack at, but we probably it probably won't because at this point, who knows how much longer Netflix is going to extend The Witcher out. I mean, if losing their lead actor didn't stop them, nothing's going to stop them. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> like they'll just you'll know, march that zombie out there until it's you know falling to pieces. Uh, if there was like one thing that I would expect to happen, it would you know like. It's you know it's in terms of ones that like haven't been made yet. Yeah. Finally getting Metal Gear or Metal Gear Solid done is the dream, but you would it would have to be like a Harry Potter TV show sort of a, a situation where you just get mm. ten seasons in a movie because that's like you can't possibly adapt that story. But do like but I guess that's not it's not gonna happen. That's why it can't happen. It's so unwieldy. It's stupid, you know, because it's Hideo <laughs> Kojima storytelling. But that, that, that said, if, like Metroid probably has the most real potential and a lot of in the same like a lot of these Nintendo properties do, because while, yeah, there's a lot that you have to honor and you know, you know, and do fan service, you know, you know, for there's at the same time room to actually put movie, you know, constructs within it and make something out of it. Like, like no one has properly tried to tell the Sama Saran story apart for Team Ninja with other M, which was trash. So like yeah. someone could do that better. Like Yosama Saran is a character that probably has some vulnerability that Nintendo doesn't have the emotional capacity themselves to explore, but a movie could. But all that said, I really want a Monkey Island movie. I want a fun pirate adventure film from that universe. Like that's my wish list. 
yeah, that could be awesome. That yeah, I, I wrote I wrote a couple down here too. I definitely agree with uh, Jack Black. Jack Black has been going around while doing press for this, saying that he wants a Red Dead Redemption movie. I totally agree with him there. I think that's one of the like that's one of the ones that I think is like a sure bet. Like you could make an amazing, incredible movie off of that. Um, and then personally for me, um, I'd like to see a, are you familiar with the little nightmares games no, at all? I've never heard no. of those. They're, they're, um, like side scroller, um, adventure games where with like a really, really messed up art style, like really, really, they were, they remind me of like old Tim Burton designs, you know, the, um, you're basically these children like trapped in like a, like a dream world with all of these like, uh, adult, um, monstrosities that like chase after you. And that could be really cool. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I, I have seen this on the steam store, I think, but I've just never gotten it. Yeah. That yeah. could, that could be cool. Um, I also, on my list, I also had Metro 2033, Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. That could be awesome. That was originally a book too, so you know that the the storyline is there. Um, the they had, there's enough material there, and then also um, a Psychonauts movie that could be there a really great, uh, really really great kids movie. That uh, well, a really great kids and adult movie. You know, it's kind of one of those movies that bridges the gap where it's it's a kids movie, but there's you know a little bit of potty humor there for the adults. And- Guillermo del Toro just take that art style from your Pinocchio thing and do psychonauts. You yeah. Know, like that's, oh, man. yeah that, that could be awesome. That could be awesome, mm-hmm. but we don't. And then the last go. Oh, I was just gonna say the last thing I had on my list was, are you familiar with um, disco Elysium? Yes. That game at all. I've been trying, yeah. I've been playing it off and on for like a year. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just don't really have the time to sink into it. Unfortunately, because I, I love the storytelling in that. And, because it's like it's a point and click click like adventure game but with dice rolls and things like that so it's like a tabletop game and i've and i have no experience with that but you could easily take that world it's so fleshed out those characters are so yes or it's already there you don't have to do any work mm-hmm. yeah that would be that would be one of my go-to's yeah there's definitely a lot of material there that would that one would probably lend itself a bit better maybe to a tv show and there's a central mystery too to that to that game you're trying to figure out you're a detective trying to figure out a murder and so that's sort of the central mystery of the show and so yeah that was kind of my short list of stuff that i would like to see and but that's what's kind of the funny thing about this you know because a lot of what makes those games appealing is that you as the player determine the outcomes yeah, and that's part and like and you shape who the character is, and that's been like the the thing getting in the way of Mass Effect happening, because the their Legendary has had those rights for over ten years. I I have somewhere in storage a little like Hot Wheels Legendary car that we got at San Diego Comic Con as a promo uh-huh. item because of the like along with a copy of Mass Effect Two on PlayStation Three which I still have in the shrink wrap because I didn't have a PlayStation three, but they, like that's how long they've been sitting on this and doing nothing with it because they're trying to like, cause I don't know they, they just haven't cracked that nut yet, but it would be cool if they could, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of weird things already in production and things that have been made recently that I didn't even know were video game movies. Like, you know, the, the, the party game, like mafia, 
Yeah. Are you yep. familiar with the variation, like, werewolf? Who's the werewolf? Yep. Someone mm -hmm. made a video game around that premise. So it's, it's basically just a, an Among Us clone with werewolves, and that had a, a fucking movie made last year. Yeah, you know, wasn't that, um, oh gosh, I can't remember his name. Uh, wasn't that like a, a Jim Cummings movie? I th no, that no, that's a different no, movie. Okay. That's a different okay. movie. Jim Jim Cummings is pure, you know, that, that was that was a labor of love. Yeah, God, I mean, yeah, because that's like something the something of Wolf Hollow or something like that. Yeah, yeah, okay, I'm getting yeah, them mixed up. Yeah, yeah. The, the, no, this is definitely inspired by a Among Us clone video game that just okay. happened to have werewolves in it, and I and I, and, th and that's where it's like, okay, guys, calm the fuck down. We don't need that. <laughs> you know, you'll give us things we actually care about, things that actually serve the 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 switch you know, in medium, because otherwise you wind up with, you know, trash, like, you know, dead or alive or Tekken movies, because nobody mm -hmm. wanted that crap. But as we, yeah, I know we're know, getting a, we're, I know we're getting a fallout TV show that's coming from Amazon. There's yeah. actually already pictures of it, I believe. And, and then there's the, uh, the Eli Roth borderlands movie that's Ugh, coming out. That's so. going to be, that's <laughs> going to be garbage, but uh, you know, Sony and Sega both have leaned heavily into this because they're all desperate for for cash revenues as we know so the they have like announced that we're getting like any like exclusive sony game is probably gonna have a movie you know in development at some point days gone <laughs> was mentioned uh we're always waiting on that god of war movie but what i found the most shocking was sega going oh yeah comic zone we sold the rights to some company and yeah that movie's you know in the works so if you played Sega Genesis in the back of the day, you can now get, be excited for the Comic Zone movie, which is no one's asking for that shit. No, <laughs> <laughs> but they'll make it anyway, because because of this little man, this portly plumber and his his you know little brother Lou, as he calls him, this you know lots of controversy, lots of people weren't sure about Chris Pratt's voice even during production. He apparently went to Jersey with it, sounded a little bit too much like Tony Soprano. Because, yeah, he is wearing um, a spaghetti face in this film. He is a non-Italian, <laughs> pre pretending to be an Italian from the Bronx. But the movie itself works only only because it, it achieves that balancing act we had alluded to. How do you take the thrill of playing this game and actually make it a worthwhile movie? And how do you find a story within this? You keep it simple. You don't overburden it with like a dense lore that no one's going to remember anyway. You like what makes those games work? It's had functionally the same story every single game. You know, you know, yeah, Peach, you know, is now one of the boys. She goes on the fights and can fly around and whatnot. But where did we start? We started out with a gross dinosaur who really wanted to marry a princess and a plumber who somehow gets involved in, you know, stopping this. And they bring in Donkey Kong. Like, there's a whole Kong country that exists, hinting at the larger universe that is there. But none of these characters are anything more than what we know them to be. None of the things they are doing is more than we are used to seeing. Like, if they have them in carts for, like, a, an extended chunk of this movie. It, it takes place on Rainbow Road. The training sequence is just... You're just watching, like, yourself get better at playing a level of Mario over and over again. The iteration you know, the struggle, like the, the finally beating that obstacle course, finally beating a Mario game. That is something I, you know, was indelibly burned into my mind when I had my Game Boy Pocket and I beat Mario and the six golden coins for the first time. I cried 
because I couldn't do it. I struggled so hard at doing it. And there's an emotional core in the story of this movie that is there that none of these critics are seeing because they can't relate. They can't relate to that basic joy of just of just being Mario and doing whatever Mario is doing. And you'll notice in the box office results that outside of the United States, the market that contributed the most money to the, the haul, the 500 million, was Mexico. You know, like mm. this is a this, this is about Italian plumber. Who would know? Because like like Mario is universal, and this movie has something missing from a lot of Hollywood you know content these days. Even Disney, neutral messaging that no one could be mad at, that anybody can just have a good time with. Because it doesn't matter. What's important is all the the lights and flashes, and the you know the, and the emotional moment when the Mario brothers finally get back together and hug. You know, like there is brotherly love happening on screen and Charlie Day and Chris Pratt sell it, even though they fail here and there along the way. This is not a perfect movie, but anyone expecting a perfect movie was going to be disappointed, no matter what their priorities are. I had fun with this. I don't know how anyone who isn't just a cynical, cynical cunt couldn't have fun with this. There's just nothing but joy to be had in seeing all this iconography doing its thing you know, hearing Koji Kondo's music in a, you know, within a context that like you have no control over this outcome, but you are, you can still cut, get caught up in it, even though, you know, the plot armor Mario wears, you know, I, I, like, I'm very happy that this is the movie we got. It could have tried to do more than what it could do. You know, like this is like keeping it simple serves this and it actually lets them tee up things in the future a lot easier because all the heavy lifting doesn't need to happen here. They just needed to get something started. And that's what this movie does. Okay, great. Yeah, that's really good to hear. I, you know, I, I was always going to see this movie, I think, because I am, I've played, I think, every single Mario game since, I mean, since they started. All the way, you know, from the original all the way up to Odyssey. And, um... I, this is definitely something I was always going to see, but the question was, you know, whether or not I was going to see it in theaters. And do you think that it's worth going to specifically in theaters? Does the spectacle sort of uh, make that idea win out? I, it kind of does just cause we don't, I don't know. I would, I would not recommend going to see a Marvel movie in a theater unless you really care. But if you want to go to a, see a movie in a theater, this is the one right now mm -hmm. until like the, the season starts like for you i don't know like there's other things that you would maybe want to see in a theater over this you know you but if you got nothing going on this is a perfect matinee movie it it doesn't offend it doesn't stick around too long so yeah you could easily you just use like an hour and a half of your day and then still have more things to do and not feel mm -hmm. like a piece of crap after you walk out of it you know because yeah like this is it doesn't reinvent the wheel because the wheel rolls fine and there's going to be something that you'll get out of it, even if it is just, you know, like a small, you know, like wave of elation, you know, at the recognition of, oh, that's that's what that is. Oh, oh that's obviously Yoshi in his shell. Why is why is he there? Why isn't he opened up yet? Well, dummy, because he's not in this movie yet, but he's going to be. Mm. And, you know, you know what I mean? Like, like I'm not I'll spoil that, but just yeah. know that like everybody is there. Everything is honored. And there's going to be something to come back for. Like, they got their hooks in me, I guess. I'm interested in seeing 
you know whatever the Zelda movie is going to be. But I my, I would hope that Shigeru Miyamoto would give them some more room to play with Zelda because that's the 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 games that truly have emotional resonance you yeah. know of all of Nintendo's mm-hmm. games and more lore to work with. So I mean I maybe wouldn't trust Illumination with Zelda. I'll say that. I don't know who I would trust with Zelda. But if yeah. you're going to make a a CG animated family film, you you can't you, but then again, this isn't just a family film. This is a love letter for Nintendo fans. The, it's a lullaby for a generation. Just you know, approach it from that angle. Speaking of the, you know, just changes in generation, changes in legacy, a big fat fucking spoiler warning as we move on in the watch list here. If you watch Succession, if you care about that show, if you have not seen season four, episode three, Connor's wedding, get the fuck out of here. Get like you, it's already been spoiled for you, surely, at this point. But what did you know? Did you expect this? Because I, I, I hadn't. I, I was like on Sunday. You just sent me a message and were like, "Motherfucker, have you seen this yet? Be careful, <laughs> you know." Because like, what the? What do you have to say now that we're past the spoiler? Oh man, yeah. This, you know, this looked like any other typical episode of su- Succession, and it's it seemed like it too. We knew that it was called Connor's Wedding, and this just seemed like it was going to be, you know, one of those Succession episodes where all the rich people gather together in one uh, extravagant place like what often happens in this show um, and it was anything but because uh, I mean we should have seen the signs that's that's the first thing I'll say is that they they were selling this in the previous two episodes so much and it's crazy that nobody called this because you know you had the, the conversations about death um, and you had the the giant, the big speech at ATN that Logan Roy gave with that. He literally ends with, I'm going to be in here a lot more from now on. And, you know, you had the, um, the final sort of, uh, scene with his kids where he literally ends it by saying, you are not serious people. And that's the last thing he ever said to his kids. But yes, we saw the death of Logan Roy in this episode. They finally made good, made good on the promise of that pilot. (laughs) basically so yeah i mean what gosh where well let's start here before we get into where do we go from here what did you make of the episode itself it's probably one of the best episodes of television that's ever been made i'll be hyperbolic and just say that because it it has an immediacy and a a reality to it where it's like you think it's as business as usual for those first 10 minutes and then all of a sudden you got tom on the phone and in my mind, I was like, he's fucking with them. This is all a game. He is playing pretend. There is no way that that man is dead in the bathroom right now or dying on a plane right now. And see, because you know, the, the characters themselves are in that same place. They don't buy it. They think, they think they're being fucked with. They think they even... Uh, 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 Roman even like says like he's just testing us. You know, like he just expect he's just been gaslit to such an extent that the they can't even you know like grapple with the reality of the moment and mm-hmm. it, there was just such a it was great acting all the way through i i don't know i just related so much to being just trapped on the other end of a phone and not knowing you know if you know a loved one is going to be okay or not and mm-hmm. even it happens even to the rich and the when 
when uh god damn it when kendall goes outside he's calling his assistant and he's like get the best plane doctor in the world like just do it like because he's just act he just has to play this role even though in secretly deep down he's like fucking finally fucking finally you know like you there's so much relief on some of their faces along with the, the the grief but none of these people felt very satisfied or settled and they i don't know the, the whole cast just did a bang up job the production sounded pretty crazy we can get onto those notes but like what was your feeling as you as it coasted to the the truth that yeah, the, the, yeah. that that is the body they, they are doing compressions on the man who is dead yeah i mean well it was it was such a genius move to not show the body at first because for the first i i don't know for the first like five minutes of the phone call you never see logan it's you just see tom's face you just see tom talking to them and so yeah you think you know is this all a ruse is this just what another one of logan's games is he just trying to get in their heads and then you get that first shot like of from like tom's perspective where he's looking down the aisle and you can sort of see logan lying there through the curtain of the plane and that's when it sort of hits that you're like oh fuck like this is this is happening and yeah, it, they really nailed the, I don't know, like the, the clinical nature of death, the coldness of especially somebody that you love dying at a long distance and just how powerless you feel. And, and also like the idea of having to like immediately move on because, you know, in real life, in movies, death is often portrayed as like something that you know, happens immediately and then it kicks off like a marathon grieving session. But that's not really how it works in real life. In real life, it's like a person dies, they their body gets whisked away and you are left sort of continuing with your life because you know that in, you know, four hours, I'm going to be hungry. In, in 10 hours, I'm going to have to sleep. You know, I still have to fulfill... In 12 hours, I have to go to work again. You know, you have to fulfill all these bodily functions. You have to fulfill these functions of your daily life still, whether it's your kids, it's work, it's school. And it just nailed that aspect of somebody dying. Exactly. Like, God, the... What was... It? Sorry, I got distracted by something. Because the thought I was having, it was along those lines. Because it, 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 there is no... Like the world does not stop. The world does not stop for you. Like, like it does in a movie just because you're sad and you're dealing with your dead dad. Connor still has to run for president in the morning. You know, he still has to figure out, you know, if he's you know going to use the, the marriage license he's picked up, you know, and, and have it signed or not. And now, yeah, now for these kids, as we've seen in the previews for the next episode, it's okay. We're carving up the body. Who gets what, you know, like it's all this brass tacks. Who, who gets to sit on the Iron Throne, so to speak, now? Like, they're, they're not even waiting for the man to be buried, you know, based <laughs> yeah. on how things are going. Because they are, like, and you even kind of see those maneuvering happening on the plane. And I found that fascinating because, like, they're all talking around the fact, like, we're not going to actually say that the man is dead yet, but we have to get ready to say that he's dead. And we have to yeah. think, like, and how can we, can we delay it? Can we wait till the market's closed? Like, the, just the, 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 the corporate talk and the, that would go on in those scenes was fascinating because it's probably real. 
you know, and you're just waiting for that other shoe to drop. Yeah, that's like at the end of the episode when they look at the the stock tank because you know cousin Greg accidentally let something slip to the reporter he was schmoozing with at the wedding, and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden everybody knows. You know, before they can actually be in position to maneuver. But then they're also having to realize anything we say now is probably going to become up in the, 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 it's going to come under congressional record. You know, it's all just going to be a part of some paper trail investigation. So we have to be very careful about, you know, how we proceed through this. And they're not at all thinking like people who are sad that their dad is dead. They are now thinking about how do I protect myself? And it's mm-hmm. going to be a, everyone's going to slit someone's throat <laughs> at some point in the, over the rest of the show's you know, you know, final season. But Mark Mylod was really d- depressed in the interview he did with Variety that I read. Just like oh, over yeah, the fact that the show is over because he's he's just been so involved with it for so long. And he's always like come into shows typically like while they're in midstream and taking them mm-hmm. to fruition. This is the first time where he's been involved from the beginning. And, you know, and, and the fact that it's being the ending is happening and that's what's fascinating. We actually have heard a little bit more about that creative decision to end the show and even to kill Logan. Like this was in the cards when they were working on season three. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's yeah. I mean, that's nice to, that's nice to hear that they actually, you know, planned everything out. I mean, of course this, this was probably always going to happen. You know, you have these ideas in your head of how the show is going to end. And you know, it, to, to me, I always thought that the show was going to end with either, you know, Kendall or Logan, like winning, you know, like winning the, you know, and, you know, like either one of two, one or two of them, of them wins in the end. And that was always going to be the ending in my mind. But now suddenly this happens and it's like all that is thrown out the window. And I don't know what, what do you think? How, where do they go from here? What's what do you think the next seven episodes look like? And that's I don't know that you could really only predict that you know if you're paying attention to reality a little bit, because there's been a lot of you know discourse about how this latest season has a lot of similarities to the the real Murdoch family's power struggle between the kids and like Lachlan Murdoch specifically and and with uh rupert murdoch the the fox news family lachlan is basically kendall like it's obvious as fuck especially when you look up more about lachlan but he is the guy kind of who has taken the reins of fox news now like after they sold off the property to to disney like like they need to stop acting like the the murdochs weren't the the prototype here but the evidence that is being presented is that the, the sons and the children themselves are the ones feeding stuff to the writers of succession so the the okay. I, so the they they might have like denied it just you know to protect their sources you know so to speak but it's probably going to mirror how that was all chopped up you know the the they're all going to be claiming different parts of it for themselves or at least attempting to so instead of mm-hmm. like like retaining control over the larger whole and carrying on their father's legacy it's all just going to be a chop shop a corporate billion dollar chop chop the gojo guy is gonna you know be you know coming for his thing stewie and whatever the other guy's name are gonna be you know, also you know like i don't know it's not gonna go well for the kids i think that something bad is gonna happen and one or all of them are gonna be cut out of anything and there's nothing to succeed to i think that would be the ultimate ironic ending to this 
is that there's all, all the big question is how are these kids going to take over the family business and instead the family business is just chopped up and taken from them instead yeah i could see that i mean i think there's going to be they're clearly hinting at some sort of uh battle between the kids and the remaining like board members or or uh you know it's going to be the kids versus carolina frank jerry and you know sort of who because those those three people they're gonna maintain that the kids were estranged and you have no business you know doing any of this because we are the actual people at the head of this company and so there's going to be some sort of feud there and i think like um you know carrie is instantly gone like i i wouldn't be surprised if we never see carrie again now because she's she's instantly reduced to nothing like she in the in the course of one episode I, i i she might get one more scene but i think we for the most part we never see her again um because uh armstrong likes to do that a lot there have been so many characters that have just disappeared from the show like holly hunters yeah and speaking of that the one thing i do think is going to happen especially if uh logan did not change his will is we get the return of marcia where she she comes back into the mix of things and she basically you know i don't know where she is in um Europe or something, but I think that that would be like a perfect opportunity for her character to come back and kind of try and get butt her way into the to get her share of things. And so that would be sort of my guess as to as to where we're headed, at least in the next couple episodes. Yeah. I have no idea for the for the actual ending of the show. There's a lot that could happen in seven episodes. Um, but yeah, I, that's where I think we're heading because it's it's a bold thing they did. They, they, they went above and beyond to make sure that no one expected this. Um, they, they had, uh, you know, Brian Cox come to set even after this episode to shoot dummy scenes that didn't exist just so, you know, the paparazzi and the fan speculation wouldn't be there, you know, cause he's still showing up for work. He's obviously still in the show, but mm-hmm. yeah, they, they committed to the bit and now they, I know that they were eschewing a Shakespearean death for the character, but the ending of the show is going to be Shakespearean as fuck because yeah, all of those critters are going to start coming out of the woodwork and they're all going to be stabbing each other in the back and it's going to be glorious. And I, I can't wait to see, I, I expect them to stick this landing. You don't execute something this well without, you know, you know, you know, really being, you know, in command and, you know, Jesse Armstrong certainly is the man with the plan. And I can't wait to see what he does next with whatever, you know he has going on up there but i i hope it's just as good if not better than the last four years so thank you brian cox we salute you go off to your mcdonald's commercials and get that bag baby now it's time to the quick hits part of the watch list i'll go first speaking of family entertainment and guillermo del toro i watched the final puss in boots film the last wish and i i guess i was unaware you know, of of the involvement of anyone from uh, the Spider-Man into the multiverse. But there are stretches of this where it goes from looking like a DreamWorks animated feature to looking like a herky-jerky Spider-Man. Like in this clip right here, it's hyper-stylized, the animation. And I really didn't know what to deal with that because it was jarring. And I don't know if I particularly like it, you know, in, in this context. 
that's it. The movie's great. It's probably the, the, the Shrek movie with the most heart, you know, for a Shrek spinoff, it shouldn't be this good, you know, and it's a proper send off to a character that's rather disposable, but I love me some Antonio Banderas and this, you know, is, it's a, a fitting end to his time with this character. And yeah, I guess it's, you know, it's worth it if you have Peacock, because that's where it's at. And you are reporting in from another New York Times Presents. Yeah, so, um, yeah, just watched another one of these episodes of this Hulu series, um, documentary series. This one is called The Legacy of Jay Dilla. And this one is definitely less, like, investigative journalism than the Anthony Pelicano one was. This is more of sort of like a definitive account of this guy's life because if people don't know jay dilla was a hip-hop producer in the 90s and early 2000s he made um a lot of beats for people like common the far side uh tribe called quest um i think he did stuff for d'angelo uh so he kind of he got around he was he's from detroit originally and he was sort of a loner. He was sort of a, a shut-in in many ways. He would just kind of spend a lot of time in his basement studio in his house. And just he had thousands of records. And he was like one of the original like samplers. The guy, you know, just he was so good at sampling other stuff and making new music and new beats. And unfortunately, uh, he passed away in 2006 at the age of 32. So Shit. his... His legacy is not very wide, but it is extremely deep because he produced so much music in that time. And if, if you have heard of him, you've probably heard of his, uh, probably his most popular self-released uh, album, Donuts, um, which has, you know, kind of had a, a resurgence in the past decade or so. But yeah, I just, just wanted to shout this out. I Jay Dilla was one of those um, hip-hop artists that, like, broke me from my music trends because when i was in high school i was very much one of those dumb high school uh kids who was like i only listen to rock and metal and that's it you know like just one of those stupid like kids from the suburbs basically and uh he really opened my eyes to the sort of the world of of hip-hop music and um all of his stuff's really great and i don't know if you ever remember this but i i actually um in when I was in college, I had this this plain black T-shirt that just said Jay Dilla changed my life on it, and I would wear that around like everywhere. And um, I was very like proud of that that fact, and because um, pretty hip, just the, yeah, I was I was I was ahead of the curve. But um, one of the things that always stuck with me was I, I would wear that shirt to school all the time, or to when I would go to my classes at college, and. There was this one guy, he was clearly like an older student, like one of those guys who went back to school in his in his late 20s or early 30s, but he was this this um older like big fat black guy that was in my class, one of my classes, and I never said a word to the guy. He he sat on literally the other side of the room. And then one day after class, he saw me wearing that shirt and he just went, "Hey, nice shirt." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I love Jay Dilla. And that like that gave me so much like validation. I was like riding that high for like the rest of the day. And then we never said anything to each other ever again after that. But it was just something that like stuck in my mind. But hey, real uh, recognizes real, man. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta appreciate those moments. I, I have no but, experience with Jay Dilla, but now I'm probably gonna download donuts on my phone as soon as we're you know done here because i need some good beats they recently added you know crystal ball tapia devere to to itunes like his full discography oh, and really? I, I need to okay. mix mix that up a little bit but i'm into that whole sampled you know kind of like dj shadow sort of you know soundscape mm -hmm. i gotta broaden my horizons a little bit too because i also was a tool kid coming out of high school if there <laughs> ever was one I also found, you know, by admittedly dubious means, because you can't really find this or rent it anywhere. But after seeing an Irish goodbye take home the live action short Oscar, I was interested in it. You know, it it has a man with Down syndrome in you know playing a brother to his you know able bodied elder brother who's you know for, lives in London. They come back home because the mother is dead and they're having the funeral. But what the heck is going to happen with Larkin? Where is he going to go? Oh, he's going to go with Auntie Margaret, of course. I don't want to go to Auntie Margaret's. I want to stay on the farm. It has pretty basic, you know, storytelling going on. And then it turns into giving the ashes of their dead mother her bucket list fulfillment. And it's a, it's a very simple little wholesome little exercise. But you can see where there's a feature film in this. Because, like, there's mm. just a, a the short films don't aren't the acting isn't as good the writing isn't as good they don't you know, usually give people time to breathe in a short film they're constantly just jumping from one thing to another but this only does that within its montage because otherwise it has some very lovely quiet little moments and some lovely acting from people who obviously aren't professionals but because they're just characters themselves they get away with it you know and you know, the brogue it just you know comes out because it's deep and if you can find this worth seeing and hopefully someday these filmmakers do something more because they clearly have the skill and they won an Oscar for it to boot. Huh. The time has come though to transition to our main event today, the fulfillment of our Don Siegel retrospective. I'm very, very glad we chose this guy. I've said that, you know, the last two episodes because I just didn't really appreciate you know, his movies before I really started you know, learning more about the man and working on this. I have, I had seen Escape from Alcatraz. It was one of my family's Netflix disc, you know, you know, your requests when I was a kid, for some reason I selected it, but this movie has a quiet, quiet, you know, intensity to it. And it is fundamental to Don Siegel's entire philosophy to filmmaking I came across a documentary that's basically just an interview with Don Siegel. And within it, he just talks about his philosophy to filmmaking. And to him, action movies are never about the action themselves. And his movies, anyway. You look at that opening sequence of Dirty Harry, where, you know, not the opening, but just the when he's when the bank robbery happens. And there's just all that buildup and that anticipation to it. It's like action is in the the anticipation of the disaster not necessarily in just it playing out and this movie you are just constantly waiting for that other shoe to drop for that action to finally just erupt 
and it never quite does you know in terms of like the the the, the escape you know it's like you would it finally when the time finally comes for this movie to ride its high for that plan to come into action and it happens pretty much silently there's no music under the score there's just action there's nothing don siegel does better than filming action happening and making it interesting and if like if you like movies where it's just people doing things even if it's simple you know like figuring out how to weld figuring out the best way to sneak in and out of your cell then this is your movie this they they this kind of to me made the blueprint even though it, and i'm sure other movies did it before them but i'm watching this and i'm like holy fuck shashik redemption just stole everything from escape to yeah. from alcatraz everything down to the older you know inmate who's your friend who has the the illegal pet that needs food you know the the guy who finally just you know has the one thing that he needs you know taken from him to make it in the prison you know and then the the choice that that person you know winds up making there's just so many things like that that this movie you know just did perfectly and it the characters within this you were just so effective and you know memorable and I, it's a it's his finest hour as a director i would say it it, mm-hmm. it it he did the most with the least here and it's just unfortunate that it led to the end of the collaboration with eastwood because they were both dueling over the rights to this book like as soon as it was getting shopped around hollywood they both wanted it and they outbid each other like they were just constantly you know, you know squabbling over it and even after they compromised it ended the partnership they, they couldn't work with each other again and it also signaled the the down you know the downward trend of his career, in terms of the, his output and what and whatnot. But he'll always have his hat to hang on this one, you know, Don Siegel, and uh, just a wonderful little action adventure movie from an era where they were allowed to be simple. There's a a quote from the voice of Optimus Prime that I came across recently, where he talked about how he created the voice of Optimus Prime and his Vietnam veteran brother imparted on him. You know, it's like, if you're going to be a tough guy, just don't be a normal tough guy. Be gentle, be strong enough to be gentle. And this exemplifies that, that kind of notion completely because this could be, it could have been a monstrous prison movie. He had, you know, Don Siegel had made these kinds of prison block movies before, but here was something that just, you know, kept it simple and did it excellent. And I recommend this completely to anyone who hasn't seen it before. Yeah, same. I mean, I the thing that, you know, kind of struck me, um, you know, thinking about this movie is it's really a testament to, like, more than anything, filming on location. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like, it's so, oh, it's so well done. I mean... Alcatraz itself as a building, as a place has been so like mythologized and the fact that they actually filmed there and they like the power plant on the island was like dead. So they had to like string power all the way from San Francisco in order to get all the electricity running and like, but it's just a testament to, you know, they actually filmed there and you really get the grodiness and the griminess of it and just how like gross and hopeless it was. And like a lot of those shots are so awesome when they're in like the yard and they're looking over the fence and you can see the skyline of San Francisco. And yeah, it's just like, 
it really is a testament to that for me more than anything. And then, you know, you add the movie itself on top of that. And especially, I mean, this is a movie about putting plans into action and the things like the little, I'm so fascinated by like the little workarounds and the shortcuts and the tricks that prisoners use to, um, you know, get stuff done or to, you know, pass the time or to get items they're not supposed to have in prison. And I've always been fascinated by that idea. And so this movie is a lot of that. It's a lot of putting plans in action. And then once the finale comes, it's just like tense as hell for the entire like last half hour. And I personally, I don't know if you knew like the, the resolution beforehand, like the story that this film was based on, but I, I didn't actually. And okay. so, cause I, um, I had listened to the last podcast, you know, episodes oh, about okay. Alcatraz. So I knew this story, you know, in depth going in like the real story and, and the fact that Alcatraz means Pelican. Because that was mentioned at least 50 times an episode. But yeah, so I, I mean, I didn't know any of that. So uh, that whole like final half hour was just super tense. And um, yeah, I really like, we'll get into it, but I really like how, how it was ended. I thought it was a perfect ending for, for the movie. And yeah, wholly recommend. You mentioned like all the little tricks, like, like how do you get something out of the metal shop? You know, it's like, because I was curious myself, you know, like, you know, like, like as I was watching it, I'd forgotten that particular part of the plan. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's 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 ingenious. And, and these people are probably dumb enough that they're not going to check your the bottom of your shoe. But the, the, yeah. what, what makes it clear in real life and in the movie is luck. They were so fucking lucky. Like so many things they could have gotten caught so many times. The things have like their plan could have been fucked up by some random change in their situation. Oh yeah. Like moving him out of that cell would have been catastrophic, you know, you know, for example. So like the plan coming together, like the, the beauty of it often is all of the, the things that they couldn't have contingencies for. Like things just had to be the perfect storm of like their, their plans versus, you know, what they're able to actually execute. Yeah. It, a uh, golly, the, and the, the prison warden played by Patrick McGowan, I think he's the, he's a construct. He's not someone who actually existed. But what did you think of you know, his portrayal of that archetype? Yeah, I thought it was great. And I really liked how, I mean, he's just like a no nonsense. Like he just wants to, you know, he's like, he comes from the school of thought of, you know, punishment over reform, like this in that, in the sort of like criminal law school of thought. And, and then I love how like he, but, you know, he still lets stuff get under his skin and he shows that like when Doc paints the picture of him, he play, he paints all the other guards super flatteringly. And then his painting is like literally flipped around so that Doc doesn't have to look at it. And it's super like goofy looking and and he, you know, he lets that get under his skin. And, you know, you can tell still that he he's a very flawed man. He's very but he's very um, imperious at the same time. That exchange with with morris and him where he's like well if people just weren't like a big fat bitch baby maybe doc would still have his fingers you know just like like <laughs> calling him out to his face directly but the guy can't admit that his feelings were hurt and that he's the reason why yeah it's it's all that that that, that scene fucked me up like when he raises the hatchet 
And yeah. like for a second, I'm like, is he gonna fucking kill the cop? Like I had forgotten. Like that's how long ago I like I saw this movie when I was like 12, and I hadn't seen it again since. So I, I'm, there was a lot that I just didn't grasp at the time. Like the like when when the wolf character is like like loaded up on him in the shower and basically saying I'm gonna you know, rape you. You know, like, like that was really menacing and terrifying. And every time that dude showed up, it just, dude, I had flashbacks to Oz. You know what I yeah. mean? And it's <laughs> yeah. shocking that they would be so frank about that kind of thing. I guess it was 1979, but yeah, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't in vogue to acknowledge that prison rape happened at that point. Mm-hmm. That, that, that male rape happened at all in, in Hollywood movies. It just wasn't something that came up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I mean, you're, t- you're kind of talking about the, the characters, the sub characters of the, the movie. And so just kind of on that line of thought, um, you know, Doc is probably the heart of the movie too. And he's kind of the, he introduces the sort of symbolism of the movie, the chrysanthemum as sort of the symbol of freedom. And, and that's, you know, carried through the entire movie and until literally the final minute of the movie. But, um, the one character that I wanted to really touch on was English because, and I don't think we've mentioned him yet, but there's a, there's something interesting going on there in that the relationship between him and Morris sort of starts off as basically a mutual, like casual racism that they both don't like each other. And they both don't like, you know, the other skin color but there's sort of a weird like underlining respect there because he lets morris like hang out on like the top of the stairs and then it sort of evolves into like a full-blown friendship throughout the movie and so i don't know i thought that was very interesting that's not something you would ever see nowadays like it's way way too um it's way way too um I don't know. I don't want to say black and white, but it's too, uh, people nowadays would basically look at that relationship and would just immediately call Morris a piece of shit and, and just kind of throw him out baby with the bathwater. And, um, there's something a lot more interesting going on in that relationship than a lot of modern movies would, uh, have the, the cojones to do basically yeah because like you i don't know in prison environments i guess like this is just historically true even then obviously yeah there's there's no miscegenation between the races in a prison typically it's frowned upon like like it is a racist environment and it it is mostly compelled you know out of people so like you could not be a racist person but you have to operate like you are one, even in modern prisons, just because the the whatever whatever folk they are, if you are on the the shit list and you're not and you're stepping out of line, the shit will rain on you. But in, as far as this movie is concerned, I, I think what it ultimately you know, kind of points to is that even though like the, the, the acknowledgement eventually comes out between these two people who are at odds, that we they are in the same boat. And ultimately they would they both want the same thing they all want the same thing they all want their freedom someday like they like morris says oh yeah i've been to atlanta but i never saw it you know like i spent years there but never saw it and it, i don't know if this is still true and, I, and it's definitely not true in the united states but in europe if you escaped from prison it wasn't a crime 
because it is a basic human desire and need to be free and they don't mm. begrudge someone no matter no matter their reason for being in prison if you escape they're not going to hold that against you they might bring you back to fulfill your sentence but they don't tack more years on because of it because from their point of view it's understandable you know and, and even like towards the end of this movie like english is what keeps the plan going because even though he's not going along with he's not on board with the plan he was you know he but he knows it's happening and he helps facilitate it because if, if he can't be free at least morris can you know like that, that like that is worth it enough to english to intervene in a situation that he typically wouldn't have involved himself in mm-hmm. you know per the the laws of the prison you know but he but he does because there's you know something that he you know, wants to see through or help see you know, come to fruition and the yeah it's a it's a beautiful thing like this is there should be things that unite us all and it is all the things that get in that all this little bullshit like race and discrimination gets in the way of we're all we're like if we all act like crabs in a bucket then no one will ever get out and that's what's really fucking refreshing about how that particular arc goes because instead of like keeping everyone trapped in the bucket he's like nah you guys get out i will make sure it happens mm-hmm. yeah so yeah that was that was those were kind of the two characters i wanted to hit on um is there anything else you wanted to any of the sub characters you wanted to mention before uh, we i really liked litmus you know like yeah you know, his, his fake al capone bit and charlie butts you know the like the the unfortunate guy who couldn't make it make it out with the others the mm-hmm. the i don't know they they have they had the texture and like you know his you know you know his meeting with his wife you know was was heartbreaking and when you find out like why he was sent to the rock because yeah you assume you're sent to the rock because you're a piece of shit and you deserve it is kind of the implication but he genuinely seemed like a guy who you know was just getting it stuck to it yeah he might have stolen a car but should he be within this hive of scum and villainy you know like does he deserve that maybe not you know does he deserve freedom probably and you know it's it's heartbreaking you know that he was the one guy who couldn't make it yeah yeah he told it definitely was and you know that that actually um reminds me that i love that clint eastwood's character apart from what we know about him from this prison and then he mentions that he was in atlanta we don't really know much about his past um as far as you know what because i mean correct me if i'm wrong but he never tells anybody what he did to get there. Nope. He never tells anybody what he did to initially get into prison. And so, you know, for all we know, he is the piece of shit. He is yeah. the guy who who's should be an Alcatraz for completely legitimate reasons, but we never find that out. And so um, we're only left to go on what we know about him from the events of the film. And so um and we're still endeared to him yeah mm-hmm. um, even though that's a fact and so that i thought that was really interesting how they chose to not reveal that stuff yeah and exactly the character it, we see his character just in in the within the, the, the context of alcatraz how he's treating these other people that we're getting to meet and care about so yeah we are biased towards being sympathetic to him but and i, I think that's kind of the point you know it's like you the the audience our, our surrogates for that same experience how would you like to be locked up like that you know day after day to have so many limitations put on your existence even if you deserve to be there you would not want to live that you know and 
so if that's what's the the allure of the prison break story it doesn't go as far as making him sympathetic but you still get invested in the journey and the quest and in pulling it off you want it to you want them to succeed you know be, you, despite not knowing everything you'd want to know and if this movie were made today this that ambiguity would not be allowed to exist they would spill the beans in some way but but in a but in but in doing so tell you what you should think about the person so that there's not mm -hmm. as much freedom you know as an audience member for what your conclusions can be the 70s were a great decade man they don't make movies like yeah. this anymore oh yeah definitely and yeah and speaking of that um the ending i want to talk about that specifically um sort of what you make of that what what your interpretation of it is because i think there's multiple reads on it um including the fact that they initially they changed it you know initially the movie i i heard was supposed to end on the guard finding the paper mache head but um it was a decision made i think mostly on eastwood's part that to put that final scene on the island in there so yeah what did you think of that well i prefer the ending that the movie got because it yeah. it, it, it alludes to the mystery yeah and yet again the ambiguity yeah, the when the mcguin's you know, warden is just like oh yes they're dead they're dead like he's just in fucking denial you know that anyone could have escaped from him let alone survived like and he just needs it to be true because yeah his head's on the chopping block but yeah that chrysanthemum sitting there is, is so obvious you know like the yeah you know, that yeah so for, for the point of the movie it's 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 a, it's wonderfully satisfying without like having the euphoric andy dufresne in the rain moment you know like it's, yeah. it's there's a lot of restraint there and it it, it holds up yeah, and it, it serves the the reality because yeah there's you, either you believe that they made it or you believe that they died you know but mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who really believe that they lived and you were able to you know live out whatever lives under assumed names that they were able to and mm -hmm. what's crazy is that if they you know, said any genetic seed after leaving the prison if we had you know like a 23 and me report done and or a dna sample for those dudes they could determine like if they made it or not. That's what's crazy to me is that with modern technology, they could know definitively if they were still in the gene pool or if they were not. And I, I, it's curious that we haven't had that door opened yet for a mystery like this. Yeah. Cause I think that's kind of the way that they caught the uh, golden state killer, I believe was through those like gene testing kits and yeah, I suppose, you know, that's something that we should touch on, too, is this is based on a true story like this. Uh, for the most part, it stays pretty accurate to the events, too, other than the warden being a made up character. And, you know, the characters are the big thing that uh, were sort of made up for the movie. But the events of the movie are pretty spot on. And in real life, I think the only thing that um, they found um, the only evidence they found that the prisoners, you know, may have lived or died was they found pieces of the raft floating on the shore, I believe. Yeah. But other than that, you know, those, the, the, they didn't, they never found any bodies. They never found any, you know, skeletons or anything like that. And so, yeah, these guys could still be out there. Um, and they could have lived full, you know, fulfilling lives and we still don't know. So that's, it makes it very interesting. It was a lot easier to disappear in South America back in the, you know, the sixties yeah. and the seventies. 
and yeah men that capable i'm sure that they were they were just fine out there um i'd want to you know bring up one last quote from that uh, yeah. documentary by uh this ockerson or ties ockerson that's on youtube uh well I'll, I'll link it in the description just so people who you know have watched these three episodes and want a to sit down with the man himself in his element in his home partially owned by bank of america as he puts it because like there's a he has it's just nuggets like i don't know who this guy was that he was able to sit down with a dude of this stature and have this much access and to have him be so honest but he has there's this long section where he talks about that what directing actually is and like what he actually thinks about you know the job itself and he's like i hate directing directing sucks you know like the directing is the worst part of the job you know like you you often feel like you have no control you know so i don't know it was just such a a frank discussion of the the you know the the vocation of being a film director like but the quote that says it the best is i hate directing those of you that are not directors think it's a very romantic job to me it isn't it's just a lot of hard work and obviously this was a guy who knew how to work hard and we're you know very grateful for his contributions to the art form yeah same yeah i'll echo what you say i i've really enjoyed these past three weeks and it's you know three movies that i either haven't seen whole cloth or i've only seen bits and pieces of over the years and so now that i sort of have them under my belt definitely looking forward to sort of going back to his other films because um yeah the man did i mean i think he's got over 30 films in his in his career he directed and so, invasion of the body snatchers yeah yeah well, yeah way back in the 50s and way. so he he has such a variety too i mean his trajectory as a director i mean we're we sort of took the decade in which he sort of came into his own but um he he made very different movies back in the fifties than oh, he yeah. did in the seventies. And so, um, yeah, very, this was very fulfilling to me and I'm glad that we did this. And about that period, you know, when he was making quote unquote B movies, like, uh, the, the kid asked, who was interviewing him, asked him, so like, do you, do you get, did you get depressed working on those bad movies all the time? And he was like, I only got depressed when it was day 17. And they told me that I had to wrap it up because the move, because the money was gone. Like that's what made him sad was not being able to finish the job. Didn't matter how lowly the job was. He just wanted to be able to, to finish the job and do it right. And he, he certainly did that during the, the, this decade where he had the most command, most power and influence. And, you know, before he was, you know, you know, resorted to making movies with Burt Reynolds, you know, who also was on the wayside of his career. But now we have to move on to the mentionable. And there's only really one thing worth talking about in the mentionable this week. And as soon as <laughs> I went to add it to the doc, I saw you had done it. But so we have a single mentionable. You take it away. Yeah, so people are probably familiar with the Lo-Fi Girl YouTube channel with the Lo-Fi Beats to study, relax to. And um, that channel um, actually this week added a second 24-hour live stream and it was done after a week of teases where initially um in the lo-fi girl video that plays while you're watching the channel a light appeared in the building in the background and people were That's like why cool. why is 
Yeah, they're like, why is the light suddenly on? That's never happened before. And then slowly more and more stuff got added to the to the video. And then a countdown clock started. And when the countdown clock ended, it played this video of this boy in sort of a very similar environment to the lo-fi girl who uh, him and his dog sit down at, at his computer. And then it started this new 24-hour stream, which is called um, Synthwave to uh i believe it's chill and game two is yep. what the channel's called and so we have a new synthwave 24-hour live stream um on the channel and I, I i love these channels i i often throw this on when i'm preparing notes for this show i will throw the the hip-hop channel on and it's just good stuff to listen to um while you're you know doing stuff like studying or writing down notes or you know doing stuff that you just want something on in the background absolutely and it's i just love the whole branding of lo-fi girls and synthwave boys it's yeah. it's very cute and very clever and it's it's, it's a nice evolution because yeah there was a lot of concern that like she was going away that like something was wrong with the channel like people were really freaked out and it's good to know that instead we're getting something even cooler to you know game and relax to what's your pick of the week yeah i uh you know it's got to be escape from alcatraz probably i mean there was many many good things to watch this week um but i just want to put that cap on our series and um it's it's a good way to go out it's a good way to to send out the decade the 70s decade and it's a good way to go out as far as our series goes and it's probably my favorite of the three movies that we did end up watching um, also. And so, yeah, just go go seek out the films of Siegel if you already haven't. And that, that, that'll be my pick of the week. I'll echo that. You know, he's a underappreciated master and he deserves his, his flowers. So we're giving them to him now. And yeah, because like, I could say Mario, but I think everyone already has seen Mario who was going to. <laughs> so seek out this underappreciated classic because yeah it's getting lost in the shuffle because everyone is more interested in shit like indiana jones these days and the star wars instead of just working man adventure films you know like this is this is what dock workers and pipe fitters go to see <laughs> but thank you everyone for watching especially all of you people who discovered the shootest in real or either or shootest aficionados and you know really boosted the view count of our last episode next week we're going to be going back to theaters we're going to be checking out the the jewish odyssey that is bo is afraid and the latest horror excursion in the evil dead universe this time with a freaky mom so looking forward to that take care everyone and have a good week yep see ya